What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Yesterday's Al Jazeera headline said, quote, aid to Gaza and beyond in jeopardy due to UNWRA funding cuts. Here to discuss that and so much more is Curry Peterson-Smith, Michael Ratner, Middle East Fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he researches U.S. empire, borders, and migration. Good morning, Curry. Good morning, Kat. Curry, I love that I get to talk to you more because I find you quite brilliant. I hate that we are still having this conversation. I always start, Curry, uh, on Mondays with you and other guests with the latest in numbers in terms of the murders in Gaza and get your reaction to where we are in this point, in this very fast-moving genocide. According to the Ministry of Health, 27,238 people murdered, 66,452 injured. I will add that that's injured without a hospital, really, to go to. Your reflections on the magnitude of these numbers and what are we now, 116, 17 days in? Yeah, I think it's, um, I think it's 122 and, um, you know, well, look, the, the numbers are are, um, are just unspeakable. And, of course, they, you know, we use numbers to try to, to have some something tangible, you know, to make sense or approach what is something that, you know, is it, is it really a magnitude beyond, um, beyond words and beyond understanding it completely to be totally honest and let me say just a, a couple things one is in addition of course to the incredible um incredible taking of life there's there's qualitatively what israel is doing in gaza i mean they are killing so many people they're also systematically um, their destruction is systematic in a way to make Gaza unlivable, you know, and mm-hmm. arguably it's been unlivable for a long time. But th- the fact that they have systematically destroyed every single university campus in Gaza, you know, um, the fact, as you said, that they that attacking hospitals are not just it's not just something that's happened, but it's been a systematic and central feature of this bombardment, this genocide. You know, it's it's it is killing untold numbers of people and then degrading life for those who remain. And my other reaction to those numbers, whenever I hear them, is I think about the conversation in this country and think about all the work that we have been doing to push officials here, you know, particularly elected officials to come out for a ceasefire. And I'm just for, for those who haven't, I'm wondering, what is your threshold? You know what we, I mean? We, I, like, listen, this is where we're going. This is the, you. Like, you always read what, my mind, <laughs> right? Like, what is it? You know, like the, right. there, there were people early on. There, there were members of. Con- I mean, what? Look, on October seventh, we knew this was going to be bad. We all, we all knew it was coming. 
I don't think any of us knew quite the magnitude, but there were people who right away, you know, including elected officials right away who called for a ceasefire. And then there were some who, you know, who were averse. They were hesitant at first. And then after hundreds of Palestinians were killed, after a thousand were killed, they were like, okay, okay, I'll call for a ceasefire. And as the numbers have gone up, more folks have called for one. And for those who haven't, I'm just like, all right, so 27,000 people killed wasn't enough for you to see this as a genocide that had to be stopped? Does it take 30,000? Does it take 31,000? I mean, what is what is the threshold? Um, so, yeah. I'm glad you went there. And I'm actually going to ask you something that I don't have in my um, list of questions for you. So I've been on the air I think nine, maybe going on 10 years. Um, and when I came to KPFA, um, they brought me really, you know, to talk about police violence, et cetera. Um, but as mm -hmm. I started to think about the other issues that I wanted to cover, because it's a drive time news show, Palestine was top of the list. Um, yeah. And so I went about the business of trying to research, to read, to study. I'm not going to use the word complicated because that's the garbage excuse from our president. Sure. Um, but but it's a lot, right, if you're going to have an educated conversation. Yeah. That said, almost 10 years later, I still feel like a, 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 a novice, right, as mm -hmm. I'm un unpacking, like, the historical um, uh, timeline um, and the impact, et cetera. You're an expert. What I, I want to ask you right now is, like, this this is horrific, and yeah. um, as I was sort of screaming at people that I was with over this weekend, this is not the first genocide attempt yeah. by Israel. And I'm wondering if you could put uh, into context for us what makes, in, in addition to just the like all eyes on Gaza, the work yeah. of the Palestinian organizers in this country and across the globe to bring attention to what was happening in Gaza and the yeah. West Bank. Yes. Put this in context to other times that Israel has bombed universities, bombed Gaza, shut down infrastructure, right? Like, and, yes. and their ability to rebuild and how that may be different now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a really good question because truthfully, you know, Israel was established in the state in 1948 and it was established through um, ethnic cleansing by um, paramilitary forces. And that that process began before 1948. Obviously, 1948 was a turning point and they established the state and they drove, they, they you know, the, the people who... Um, I mean, there was a, you know, there have been Palestinians living in Gaza for a long time, but the overwhelming majority of current residents of Gaza were pushed out of other towns um, and cities in 1948. Um, and so, exactly, what, what Palestinians call the Nakba, or the catastrophe. And so, um, since then, all of Palestine, and then Gaza in particular, has been this kind of laboratory for different kinds of Israeli violence. Um, and uh, it's true that this is not the first time that uh, Palestinian educational institutions, medical facilities, schools, mosques, churches have been targeted. That, that, um, that has been happening for a long time, unfortunately. 
Now, <clears throat> there is, it, it, it's worth saying too, just, um, you know, some important background that I think folks will have in the back of their minds, but it's just important to remember, you know, this current bombardment is coming after years of a blockade of Gaza, since two, which has been in effect since 2007, you know? Um, and so Gaza in particular has been, has been starved, it's been isolated, um, and this is the fifth major bombardment um, of, of Gaza. The scale of this one is unlike the other ones. And, uh, you know, when, when you would, at, at the top of this, of our conversation, when we were talking about how many days it's been, I actually, I'm, I'm sitting in my, in my, my home office right now. And I have on my wall, a piece of paper that has the, the four previous bombardments and how long they lasted, you know, 2008, mm. 2009, 23 days, 2012, wow. eight, you know, 2014, 50 days and that 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 bombardment 50 days was absolutely horrific i mean they were all horrific but you know that one um you know that was the one where were hundreds of of palestinian children in particular over 500 palestinian children in gaza were killed and at the time it was it was incomprehensible you know that that this bombardment lasted that long and that that many people and children in particular were killed and then 2021 that bombardment lasted less than a week and i've got under under those you know i have tally marks counting the days of this bombardment and uh, there's a point at which i stopped because we, yeah we're at 122 days now so just to give you a sense of the length of it and the scale um it, it's it's massive and the other thing I'll, I'll just end on this point you know this this puts things in in perspective for me you just mentioned the Nakba, you know, what, what Palestinians call the catastrophe, the the the, the kind of turning point of uh, massive ethnic cleansing in 1948, which you know Palestinians have have argued that the the Nakba wasn't just one event that came and went, but it's been an ongoing thing. And yet, of course, 1948 was a particular moment where um, you know more than 700,000 Palestinians were forced from their land. Well. At the moment, there's more than 2 million Palestinians in Gaza who have been displaced. That is, the numbers who have been displaced in the past few months is on a scale higher than the original moment that mm. Palestinians mark, you know, um, uh, and that Israel marks as, as the founding of its state. That puts things in perspective. Too. So, you know, truthfully, there has been a um, a conversation, an Israeli conversation from the start. That is, what do we do with this indigenous population? You know, do we let them stay here, but with no political rights? Or do we just get rid of them altogether? That has been an open political conversation in Israeli society for, you know, the past seven plus decades. Uh, and we are seeing a particular moment of, um, I, I think that the, the, the kind of normalization of that violent conversation in Israel, that is what we are seeing expressed in real life in a dramatic way right now in Gaza. All right, two, two follow-up questions. And I always look at the clock when I'm talking to you because I have so many questions and never enough time. 
Um, but first follow-up question is like one of the things that at least I, and I would assume you, um, admire and, and I know so many others admire or respect. Actually, I know you because we've had this conversation, um, mm. or, or gather inspiration from is the resilience of the Palestinian people. Like, I think that's part of what, uh, draws the ire. <laughs> in, yeah. in a particular way, right, uh, of of Israel, um, is is that you cannot. It's like black people in this country, right? Like white white yeah. folks or white supremacy looks at us and like, what what will it take? They've thrown right. everything at us, and yet right. we are still here. Same right. with Palestinians, right? They yeah. s- still they rise. Um, and and I guess I just keep because at some point. Right, there will be the well. There is nothing left to bomb, but at some point, at some point, there'll be nothing left to kill, murder, maim, destroy. What will be the difference, do you think, in terms of the ability, not for Palestinian people to maintain their spirit and culture and beauty, but to actually rebuild this time? Yeah. Like what? What is what is the difference in trajectory, and what does that mean in terms of any sort of post quote unquote air quotes truce solution? Right. Well, you know, let's start with what you said about the kind of um, the resilience of the people of Palestine. There's a word that Palestinians use, which is the mood, which. Uh, roughly translates to steadfastness. Um, And it speaks to, yeah, in the face of just an unreal level of, of colonial violence, a a persistence in any number of ways. Uh, And, you know, it's, it's interesting because when um, there is a conversation, again, there's an Israeli conversation that says, and then you know, starting with the Prime Minister Netanyahu, that this this what they call a war um, is existential, and there's so, there's some truth in that because what is revealed in the I mean, I mean, putting aside for a second the past few months, just put us like think about what the people of Palestine and the people of Gaza in particular have endured just for the past 16 years of blockade, of isolation, of starvation, of, you know, regular bombings, uh, you know, all of that. And yet, here they are. Like, like this is a group of people who has, who whose very existence has been negated by Israeli leader after Israeli leader, you know, uh, you know, gold in my ears. Oh, there, there are no Palestinians. They never existed. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And yet, this is a group of people who has refused to call it quits, you know, uh, and, and basically um, uh, commit collective suicide, which is what Israel has has wanted, despite all the violence. And, and part of the lessons um, of the past few months is if if the years of blockade and this bombardment, you know, et cetera, et cetera, if that did not lead to the eradication of Palestinians from Gaza, let alone the rest of Palestine, these people aren't going anywhere. You, you know what I mean? Like, like Israel actually yeah. cannot win. 
it it, right. it, it really is. It, and so, and and I, and I I believe that deep in my bones. And I know that we, you know, I know that there's a lot of like very heavy, you know, horrific things happening. I know that we've got to talk about that. Yeah. But I just want to come back to at the end of the day, they cannot. They've tried everything. Right. And Palestinians remain. So. Yes. So it's it's really so Palestine will be free. I mean, that's not just it's not just a, you know, it's not just an aspiration or a slogan. This is historically just it's evident, right? Yeah. Um, Israelis, there's this conversation in Israel about the Palestinian birth rate. There's so many of them. I mean, they cannot get rid of this population. They can't. And so it's not a question of if Palestine will be free. It's when, it's you know, when. and I think. I think that our our job around the world is to do what we can to stop the flow of weapons, et cetera, you know, the violence, to do our part to make that day, you know, help Palestinians make that day come sooner rather than later. Yes. And, and I think, and I'm, I'm going to move on because I've actually had yes. news headlines I need to talk to you about. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yes. But I'll, I'll just say out loud that I, I think that that's part of why... Um, Israel um, is so intent on trying to annihilate them and that the United States and other world powers are so okay with being complicit because it is not just Palestinian liberation uh, that is on the horizon. It is all of our liberation as we learn from their struggle. That's right. Um, all right, Curry, before I left for the weekend, there were rumblings of Netanyahu possibly agreeing to, a, again, air quotes, truce. Headlines yesterday, as I was preparing to talk to you, was BB says, quote unquote, not at any cost. <laughs> um, <laughs> first question, what was the framework for this version of truce and which countries hammered it out to present to Israel? Yeah. Um, so the countries that that hammered it out um, were U.S. officials, Israeli officials, Egyptian, um, and Qatari officials. That's who hammered it out in Paris. Um, and I want to say a bit more in a minute about who was there, but the the framework is that there would be a pause um, in in fighting uh, for an initial six weeks. Uh, and that Hamas would release um, the civilian uh, captives, uh, Israeli captives, so they have, um, and then that there would be Palestinian um, captives uh, of Israel also uh, exchanged. And so there's a question of, um, of uh, I believe it's you know uh, three. Um, I think they were talking about three Palestinian captives uh, per Israeli uh, uh, captive. Um, and, and, and then th that there would be, uh, a flow of aid, uh, into Gaza. So it's pause the fighting for six weeks, um, you know, release the, the civilian captives, um, uh, for, uh, Israeli captives and Palestinian captives, um, and then, uh, aid to Gaza. So that's the framework. And notably, this is not, um, a permanent ceasefire. Uh, it is what Israel calls a pause. The idea being to resume uh, their bombardment after the time has elapsed and after their um, the hostages have been returned. Okay, 
Um, and uh, Netanyahu says absolutely not. Uh, he says he, they're moving forward um, under this guise of, right, they have to finish destroying Hamas. Not my words, theirs. Right. What are the stakes for each of those countries or their leaders if this continues much longer? Well, this is very interesting. I mean, one of the things that is noteworthy, and I said I wanted to talk about this, is who was there negotiating for each of these these states? And what's remarkable to me is how high level it was. The head of the CIA <laughs> is there, wow. um, you know, in Paris. The head of Israeli uh, Mossad and Shin Bet, their, their foreign intelligence and domestic intelligence, is there at the table. The head of Egyptian intelligence. And then the head of state of Qatar is in Paris. That shows me that this is a priority, you know, for these states mm. to have some resolution that this, you know, the the idea that um, that I think Israel had and certainly the United States had, I think more than more than anybody, actually, that uh, this would be quick, uh, that Israel would achieve its military objectives um you know, and and then they would be done with this. That is not what has happened. Uh, Israel, you know, not only has made a, a, for a, you know, an unreal humanitarian catastrophe, but they have not achieved their military objectives. I mean, uh, rockets, <laughs> right? Rockets continue to fly into Israel. The whole the whole idea of this thing was to stop that from happening. And that continues uh, to happen. Um, so, and they don't have, they don't have, they have not yet gotten their, their hostages. I mean, th those are the two goals, right? The two military um, objectives. And Israel has failed to achieve them. So there is major unrest among Israelis. As we know, there's major, and this is, this is really remarkable. There's major unrest here in this country. And I think for a president, for an unpopular incumbent president who is beginning his reelection campaign, and where every single place him or another one of his administration officials go, they are interrupted by activists demanding a ceasefire. They are saying, we need to make this thing go away. And so I think that those are, are the stakes. I mean, on one hand, the White House, you know, they seem unwavering in terms of continuing to supply the weapons to Israel, but they are not happy with how this thing is proceeding. And I think that that's the stakes for uh, for the U.S. and why uh, they, they, they want they want there to be some kind of truce. Yes. And shout out to the folks in the Bay that interrupted an event with the vice president um, on Tuesday of last week. Um, Curry, at the, the same gathering of folks I was with over the weekend, um, there were different hues and politics of people. And the lighter hued person, if you will, suggested <laughs> that those of us who may not vote for Biden this round, um, that, that those of us um, who, who would make that choice uh, in, in this lighter hued person's words, quote unquote, lacked a tragic imagination, meaning we weren't thinking clearly about how bad things could really get get under a second Trump administration. Um, my colleague, same hue as me, pointed out that we were <laughs> black and we were more than clear about how bad America could get for our folks. Um, and and I, you know, went on whatever rant I went on. But I'm I'm interested in your thoughts. And then I do. I've only got about five minutes with you. I want to get into UNWRA uh, before I let you. Yeah. Go. 
Yeah, I'll just say I am very, con there's two things. One is I'm very concerned that the conversation about the elections, there is an effort to make it what conversations about elections always are in this country, which is stop thinking about and talking about and acting on what you actually care about politically and suck mm. it up and vote for somebody who you don't want. Because <laughs> it's and the lesser of two evils. Because it's the lesser of two evils. And first of all, that logic, I, I mean, I have heard that for my entire Your whole life. Political, and that isn't just a sensibility. There's a strategy behind that. Oh, if we just this time vote for the lesser evil, someday we'll get something better. Mm -hmm. Well, now we have Biden versus Trump. Okay, <laughs> so, 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 so that's where that road has taken us. And I, I for one, no, I am, I am, I am honestly, you know, when people ask, well, what are you going to do in November? I'm so angry that <sighs> this is the choice, choice in quotes, Biden, you know. Biden versus Trump. So, but I'm more, more practically, I am concerned that a conversation about November and what we're going to do in November is going to distract us from what we need to be doing right now, which is stopping yes. this genocide, right? So we cannot let that happen. We cannot let this, that conversation creep into, okay, you know, it's time to put up what we've been doing and, and get ready for November because it's like, no, 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 we've got work to do right now. And that, that brings me to the second point, which is that for a lot of reasons, including and especially because this is an election year, the movement for Palestinian rights has more power than literally ever before in U.S. history. I mean, this is power. I mean, again, why did they send the head of the CIA to Paris? They're like, we're not going to send the low, like we're going to send our top guy to handle it. Why is Antony Blinken back in the Middle East again? I, th I think this is his seventh trip or something like that. Mm, okay, mm -hmm. th this, is, this is a response to... Uh, something that has never happened, which is a foreign policy question not involving U.S. troops. This isn't about a U.S. invasion, right? This is about Palestinians, and yet that has become a central issue in U.S. politics. That is power in our hands, and we need to think about how to use that. And I am concerned that the conversation about the election will lead us to surrender that power. So we can't let that happen. Thank you. And I totally digress from what I was supposed to talk to you about this morning. But I, I, I think that every time you're on the air, we have to talk about this as we barrel towards November. Okay, I've got like oh, two and a half minutes. All right. Yeah. Funding cuts to UNWRA. Uh, what is the UNWRA? What do they do? And um, I'm sorry, why um, has funding paused? <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, UNRWA is a, a UN agency that is, you know, the, the UN um, has a number of efforts to attend to the needs of refugees and displaced people. UNRWA is an agency that is specifically uh, created and administered to attend to the needs of Palestinians, of, of that um, uh, uh, refugee population. Um, uh, in in the West Bank, in Gaza, uh, and in refugee camps uh, throughout the region, uh, and so they have done so for uh, the decades, and at the moment are playing an enormous role in in terms of sustaining, you know, on a basic level, life uh, in Gaza. They are the primary agency, you know, when it comes to shelter, water, 
food, hygiene, etc. They have long been a thorn in the side of uh, Israel because they, because Israel says, why don't you treat Palestinians the way you treat any other refugees and actually work on resettling them elsewhere? (laughs) Um, (laughs) UNRWA, you know, it it flows from a reality that Palestinians who are Palestinian refugees are saying, we're going back home. We don't know when, but we're going back home. Right. And and UNRWA uh, attends to that fact. And so uh, Israel has had it in for UNRWA for a long time. Uh, The U.S. has uh, defunded UNRWA before. Uh, but most recently, there has been an accusation that UNRWA personnel participated in the October 7th attacks. Um, this this uh, accusation, which is just that, an accusation, it has not been made in a court of law or anything like that. Um, it is an accusation on the part of Israel. The, Israel claims to have had this information for a while. And curiously, they released this accusation, or at least informed the United States of this accusation, on the same exact day that the International Court of Justice decided that there may be a genocide taking place in Gaza. And so on that same day that the ICJ made its decision, that is when the United States said, we are now going to suspend our funding to UNRWA. And I don't think that those two things are coincidental. You answered like four of my questions in one answer. One of the reasons why I love you as a guest. Last <laughs> question, and then I've, I've got to move on to my next person. Um, Curry, the fallout. I mean, we already know that humanitarian aid into Gaza, into the West Bank is little to none. This is what has been happening. If funding is not restored, then what? You know, what's it's, it's not like defunding UNRWA is not just so incredibly uh, immoral, you know, but it is, it is the international law says that an occupying power actually has responsibility for the people it occupies. And so, you know, Israel, there, there is a universe in which Israel says, you know, we want funding cut to UNRWA, but we are actually going to step up and we will take care of providing for the two million, you know, two plus million uh, Palestinians in Gaza. That's not what they said. That's not, the United States did not say we're going to cut funding to UNRWA, but we're going to support this other agency uh, to, to, to take care of them. It's cutting UNRWA and that's it. And so UNRWA officials, who, by the way, immediately uh, uh, fired these these uh, personnel who've been accused just on the basis of accusation because they know of the consequences if their funding is cut. Uh, they have made it very clear. And every single other humanitarian UN agency has also made it clear. The head of each one has signed a document saying we are not in a position to take up the slack if UNRWA is not funded. Only UNRWA can actually provide uh, for the humanitarian needs of Palestinians. And so that's really what's at stake here. All right, Curry, I've got to leave it there. We will talk again soon. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. 
our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.